0: Let's pray together. Our Lord, I confess that I am a man of unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips. Our words are often not true. And we pray that our words today would be impacted and collide with your words. You are true. Your words are true. And we ask that today you would have the effect of having your word from here forward shape our words that we would live under your word, be shaped by its truth in a way that impacts forever the words that come from our mouth, so that they would reflect Jesus, who is the truth. We ask this to the Father, with the help of the Spirit, for the glory of the Son, and pray in his name. Amen. When I was younger, I was a craftier liar. Uh, When I was in elementary school, everyone had to take band, okay? So I played the saxophone. Uh, Played the saxophone is a bit of a stretch. I had a saxophone because the school gave me one. And so I I was an awful musician. I was just terrible at it. In fact, I remember that we had the winter concert. And when the winter concert came, the big finale was Eye of the Tiger. And my band teacher asked that I air play rather than real play because I was just really awful at it. I hated band. I hated music. I just didn't have a musical bone in my body. It's just not in my makeup. So, for example, when Sibby is up here and he's dogging the church about how we don't clap in rhythm, you don't see it, but he's really looking at me the whole time and saying, can we please clap in rhythm? I can't do it. I just can't sing and clap at the same time. Nothing about me was musical. And so I had this brilliant plan to quit band. What I was going to do, and I had already been in elementary school weekly forging my mom's signature, saying that I had practiced when I had never practiced, and so I came up with this brilliant plan to quit ban. So what I was going to do is I wrote a letter saying that please excuse my son from ban, he no longer needs to participate, forged my mom's signature, brought it to the school. And then I was halfway home because now I convinced the school mom doesn't want me in in the band. Now I just needed to convince mom that school doesn't want me in the band. So I went home and I told my mom that I was so bad at the saxophone that they kicked me out of band. And my brilliant plan was perfect. I was almost there, except my mom heard it. And I kid you not, word for word, her response was, they can't kick you out. I pay school taxes. And so she had this huge outrage going, we pay taxes. They are not kicking you out. No matter how bad you are, you're going to be in the band. And so when she picked up the phone to call school, I broke down. I'm a liar. I'm so sorry. And so I had to confess my awful lie. Now, there's nothing like getting caught in a lie, like getting busted for deceit. But here's the thing. As you grow older, you don't stop. You just get a bit more sophisticated. Right, you, you spin it better, you, you have half-truths and fibs and, and, and stretching of the truth. I think for most of us we'd say, look, uh, we know we shouldn't lie. Our culture even is full of proverbs like, honesty is the best policy. We all know it. And so I think most of us would say, we're not liars what we would say is, look, every now and then everybody fibs or everybody tells a little white lie is what we'd call it because liar is too harsh. We, we say white lies. We stretch the truth a bit. We spin the truth a little bit. You, you almost can't even call it lying because after all, who doesn't stretch the truth a little now and then? Who hasn't said, oh, I would have loved to come. It's just I can't because I'm going to be out of town that week. Or, or who hasn't said... Uh, sorry I didn't get back to you because I didn't see your text message, your email, your four instant messages, your three voicemails. I, I didn't get any of those, right? Who, who hasn't said, boss, I can't come in because <coughs> I'm not feeling well today. Or, or, yes, you look absolutely skinny in those jeans, right? <laughs> Need I go on? Here's what I'm saying. Jesus this morning is after the truth the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help us God. That's what Jesus is after. And Jesus, hear me in this one, he is not after just the compulsive liars in the room, or the pathological liars in the room. Jesus, as is consistent throughout the Sermon on the Mount, is after the sneaky, technically not lying, carefully crafted, rightly worded half-truths, I've got my fingers crossed behind my back so it doesn't count kind of lies. What Jesus does is he throws a net wide enough to catch all of us into this passage. And that's what we've seen throughout the Sermon on the Mount, isn't it? If you've been following the Sermon on the Mount with us, as we've been working our way slowly through this passage, we keep seeing that Jesus is not just going after the sinners who are sinners and they know it, Jesus is going after the sinners who are sinners and are in denial about it, right? That's what we see all the time. In the Gospels, when Jesus goes up to a prostitute and says, you're a mess, you're in sin, you need me in your life, the prostitute responds by going, you're right, how can I follow you? But when Jesus goes to moral, religious, upstanding, commandment-keeping people and says, you're a sinner, you're a mess, you need me in your life, They go, you're wrong, how can we kill you? And so Jesus is constantly trying to throw a net that's wide enough to capture all of us. So, for example, even in the Sermon on the Mount, we've seen this already. When Jesus talks about murder like he does in verse 21. Remember, he's not talking to serial killers. He's talking to people like you and me, folks that would find ourselves in a religious place who would never kill anyone and saying to us, You do know the command is more than don't take life, but breathe life into all your relationships. So let's talk about your anger, and let's talk about your unreconciled relationships. Or when Jesus is going to talk about adultery like he did in verse 27, we heard that Jesus wasn't talking to a room full of serial adulterers. He was talking to a bunch of people who have never been to bed with anyone but their spouse. And he's saying to them, but you do know the commandment about adultery is more than don't sleep with someone else. So let's talk about what's going on in your brain and the amusement park that you have running in your mind. So let's talk about lust and how it's a breaking of the commandment that catches all of us. Throughout the Sermon on the Mount, over and over again, Jesus has relentlessly been going after our loophole, technically not all that bad, sinfulness and righteousness. Jesus is going after that, I'm not that bad, I didn't break the actual command, loophole, bare minimum, technicality, righteousness of the religious leaders, of the Pharisees. This is why this section, if you remember, began with Jesus saying, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Right? That's what he's been teaching all along. Unless your righteousness, your way of being right, is better than technicality, loophole righteousness, You'll never enter the kingdom of God. And so he's been going after one practical issue after another. Our relationships, our marriages, our heart and thought life. And today he comes to yet another practical issue. And he says, now I want to talk about your speech and the words that come out of your mouth. And more specifically, the truthfulness of the words that come out of your mouth. So hear once more what Jesus says. Anything more than this comes from evil. One Bible teacher said that what we should often do, what's helpful to do when we come to a passage is to ask three questions. And the questions are what, so what, and what now? Meaning, and that's helpful advice for any passage you might be studying this week. Ask yourself first what, that is what does this passage say? Then ask yourself perhaps so what, what difference does this passage make? And then ask yourself, now what? That is, what should I do in response to this passage? So let's take those three helpful questions and apply them to this passage. And start with the first one, that is what? What is Jesus saying? Here again his words, at least the first two verses. Again, you have heard that it was said, you shall not swear falsely but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all. So what? What is Jesus saying there? Now, I don't know about you, but to be honest, for me, a a majority of the week, I had a real hard time figuring out exactly what was Jesus saying here. What is Jesus against in this verse? Is it that Jesus is against oaths? Is it that he has something against promises or vows or swearing? And what's behind that? Is it that Jesus just wants to make sure that his followers, his citizens, Christians, make sure that we never make a promise or take an oath or make a pledge? And listen, some have interpreted that that way. So, for example, you still have groups of Christians who will, for example, never swear in court, won't put their hand on a Bible, won't raise their hand, won't give testimony because of this verse. You have others who won't join the military or take oaths of allegiance because of this verse. So here's what we'd say. While we would sincerely applaud the desire to obey the Scriptures, there is a problem with that. And the problem with that interpretation is that Jesus himself will speak under oath. For example, in Matthew 26, verse 63, Jesus is on trial before his death and execution. And when he's standing on trial, the high priest is coming at him for a while. He doesn't say a word. But when the high priest puts him under oath, or listen for yourself, Matthew 26, verse 63, the high priest said to him, I charge you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Messiah, the son of God. You have said so, Jesus replied. So when he's being questioned, he doesn't say a word, but when the high priest charges him under oath of God, which is the equivalent of our putting your hand on the Bible and saying, I'm promising to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, Jesus speaks. Moreover, in the New Testament, we know that Jesus' apostles, like the Apostle Paul, would speak under oath and swear, even invoking God in his words. For example, 2 Corinthians 1.23 says, I call God as my witness, and I stake my life on it that it was in order to spare you that I did not return to Corinth. So he's trying to explain something to the church in Corinth, but what does he do? He says, as God is my witness, I could stake my life on it. That's the equivalent of us saying, let lightning strike me dead. Let God strike me dead if I'm not telling the truth right now. Right? So you've got these New Testament practices of oaths and swearing and vows and promises and pledges. And moreover, you even have verses and laws about it in the Old Testament. So for example, just quickly listen to two of them with me. Leviticus 19 verse 12. You shall not swear by my name falsely and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. Or Numbers 30 verse 2, if a man if a man vows a vow to the Lord or swears an oath to bind himself by a pledge, he shall not break his word. He shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. Now why am I pointing you to this? I'm pointing you to this because there's clear Old Testament laws about making oaths, about making promises and vows and pledges, and yet now you have Jesus in this passage and you heard him say... You have heard that it was said, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all. And so we run into a bit of a problem because what is Jesus doing? Is Jesus correcting the Old Testament law? Does he have something against God's commands in the Old Testament? And what we need to remember is what we've said for weeks as we've been studying this passage slowly. What we said was, do you remember that Jesus started this section by saying, I have not come to abolish the law or the prophets. Do you remember him saying not even the, the tiniest dot or little I will be replaced from the law? And so we know that Jesus does not have a problem with God's law. So then what is his problem? What we found over and over again is his problem is with the religious leaders' interpretation of the law. Or better yet, their misinterpretation of the law. And so in this verse, we're already clued in to know his problem is not with oaths and promises as much as it is with what the Pharisees did with oaths and promises. What the Pharisees did with with vows and swears and pledges. Remember with me, the Pharisees, the religious leaders of that day, were kings of loophole-seeking righteousness. They were experts at technicality righteousness. They were always looking to pull a fast one on God. And so when you read this passage, you almost come to expect, you're almost prompted to the question of, okay, so what are they up to now? What are they trying to pull on God now? And surprise, surprise, wouldn't you know, that's exactly what they're doing. See, here's what the background of this verse is. The Old Testament had these laws about oaths and keeping your promises, and when you invoke God's name on something, you better keep your word. But what the Pharisees did was they created this entire legal structure this structure imposed onto those laws with certain rules about when your oath counted and when it didn't. These special rules about when your oath was binding and when it wasn't. What they essentially did was they created an elaborate system of crossing your fingers behind your back. They found an incredibly technical way in which you could cross your fingers behind your back and your word doesn't matter or doesn't count. So for example... You have this book called the Mishnah, which was the Jewish code of ethics. And in it is this word where one rabbi says, if you swear by Jerusalem, you're not bound to your oath. But if you swear towards Jerusalem, you're bound. You see that? That's all it takes. All it takes for your oath to either matter or not matter is whether you use the words by or toward. So if I swore by Jerusalem, I could go, uh-uh, didn't count because I didn't swear towards Jerusalem. This elaborate system of loopholes. In fact, Jesus goes at this fully in Matthew 23 when he's really going after the Pharisees. Listen to what he says. He says to them, woe to you blind guides who say, if anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. You blind fools for which is greater the gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred and you say if anyone swears by the altar it is nothing but if anyone swears by the altar that is on the by the gift that is on the altar he is bound by his oath you blind men for which is greater the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred So whoever swears by the altar swears by it and by everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. You hear what Jesus is saying? He's saying, you Pharisees, and he goes so far as to say, you blind fools and guides. You and your loophole-seeking technicality righteousness. I mean, think of the evil genius to come up with a system where you could go, no, 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 no. I swore by the altar, not the gift on the altar. No, 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 no. You can't hold me to my word. I swore by the temple, not the gold in the temple. And Jesus says, what kind of logic is that? What kind of loophole is that? How is it that you're inventing these ways as if you could escape from God when you make a pledge or a vow? And listen, that's what they did. Because what an oath was... Listen, what an oath was was essentially you calling God to hold you account to this word. Right? This is why we say, the whole truth, nothing but the truth. So help me, God. That is, let God deal with me. Let God help me if I'm lying right now. And so every oath had this sense of where you were invoking the name of God. So here's what the Pharisees did they found ways to leave God out. So they swore by heaven and they swore by earth and they swore by Jerusalem, they'd even swear by their own head, and they'd go, no, 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 I didn't swear by God, right? It's one thing if you go, I swear to God, and you say something, and they just made sure that they never said that. They left God out completely, but listen to what Jesus says. Jesus says, "Are are you seriously looking for that kind of evasive technicality and loophole? Listen to what he says in verse 34. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. So here's what Jesus is saying. You're thinking that you can make these promises without God being there, but when you promise by heaven, that's God's throne. When you promise by the earth, what do you mean God's not there? That's God's footstool. When you promise by Jerusalem, what do you mean for that's God's city? In fact, you can't even swear by your own head for you can't make one hair change its color without God getting involved. Think of that. You who are graying, no matter how hard you tried, you can't make one of them turn black without God being involved. So here's what God is saying. Here's what Jesus is saying. There is no corner, no crevice, no crack, no tiny space in all the universe where you can escape God's presence. He's everywhere. And so your pledge and your word is tantamount to you saying, I swear to God every time something comes out of your mouth because God is everywhere. Where are you going to go to escape God? This is why Psalmist 139 will say, if I go up to the heavens, you're there. If I make my bed in the depths, you're there. If I go to the far side of the sea, you're there. Where are you going to escape God's presence that you could let words fly out of your mouth as if they're not accountable to God? As if every word that comes out of your mouth isn't equal to, I swear to God, what's about to come is true. Everywhere. Where are you going to escape his presence as if you could make a pledge, a commitment, a statement without God's watching eye or listening ear? I heard a pastor tell a story about a man who was having an affair And so he had this ongoing relationship with a mistress of his. And every time his wife went out of town for business, he'd have her come over. Every time, come over, over and over again, was living this lie. And yet his wife had this terrible habit of having pictures of them everywhere. Pictures of their wedding, pictures of their family, in every room, on every desk. And so every time she was out, and every time he'd have this other woman come in, his regular practice was to have to go throughout the house and turn every picture over. And you get it. I don't even have to explain it, right? You get why he'd have to do that, right? Because her presence, he couldn't do what he was doing with her presence. Yet even the token of her presence, even the, the slightest resemblance of her presence reminded him of what he was doing was wrong. And Jesus is saying, here's what the Pharisees are doing. They're trying to go throughout the world, turning over God's picture, trying to escape his gaze, trying to escape his watchful ear, pretending that there might be a corner or a crevice or a crack in the universe where they could say something and it not be held accountable by God. Don't swear by heaven. That's God's throne. Or by earth, it's his footstool. Or by Jerusalem, it's its city. Don't even swear by your own head. You can't make one hair turn white or black without God being involved. He is everywhere here. And so enough with your technicality, loophole, righteousness. I mean, you, you think of that with me for a second, Satham wrote. Isn't that sheer evil genius on their part? That they could take oaths which were supposed to bind you to the truth and make it a path for lying. I mean, what kind of genius does it take that you would take oaths which were to make you swear to tell the truth and even find in there a way to make it a vehicle for your deceit. That's what disgusts you about these Pharisees. And if you're honest, that's what disgusts you about yourself, about myself. I'm not a liar. I'm just not always completely true. I just spin the truth sometimes so that it's easier to say and more palatable to hear. I stretch things a bit. They're white lies at best or at worst. And and we've all got this technicality righteousness in us. We've all got these loopholes. When I'm a, a high school kid, I remember I'd drive somewhere that I'm not supposed to drive or go somewhere I'm not supposed to go. But I'd make sure I stopped by the library on the way. So that when mom and dad asked, where did I go? I went to the library. You know what? That's true. I didn't lie. I went to the library. I just became more sophisticated at it. And you have too. You have too. At work, at home, in your relationships, it costs you something to tell the truth. And so you spin it just right because you and I are experts at technicality righteousness. And Jesus is saying, I would sooner get rid of oaths all completely than you have these play, play these games with these words. I'd rather it be that you never swore again than you play these kinds of games to somehow keep your righteousness and your deceit at the same time. So, so what? Right, if that's the what, this is what Jesus is saying, so what? What difference does this make? Well, listen, Jesus in this passage does more than just tell us what not to do. He tells us what we ought to do. He tells us the difference it's going to make. He tells us what we should do now. He doesn't just say, so don't take oaths by heaven or hell or all these elaborate things that you do. He says instead, here's what you're to do. Verse 37, let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. Here's what you should do. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. So here's what he's saying. He's saying, do you belong to me? Samaro, do you belong to me? Then be the kind of people that when you say yes, it really truly means yes. And when you say no, it really truly means no. And he says, anything more than this comes from evil. So here's what he's saying. He's saying the need for promises and oaths come from evil, or in other translations, from the evil one. So think about that for a second. What do we mean by that? How is it that the need for promises and oaths come from evil? Well, think about that for a second. Why do we need oaths and promises? Why do I need to say, I swear on my mother's grave? Or, I swear to God. I, I, you have to believe me, I swear on such and such, because I need you to trust me this moment, as opposed to What? all the other moments where I may or may not be telling the truth. I need to promise and make vows and make elaborate, extraordinary sentences because all the other times you can't count on whether I'm telling the truth or not. When we say, let me be honest for a second, as opposed to what? All the other seconds? When what? No, I'm really going to tell you the truth right now in this moment. All of those structures are in place because one commentator says, oath-taking and swearing is really a pathetic confession of our own dishonesty. Oaths are made because men are so often liars. That's why we have to do it. Anything more than a yes or no comes from evil because we know this is who we are. My six-year-old Hannah, I'll tell her on a Saturday, I'm going to take you to Chuck E. Cheese. You know what Hannah says to me? Dad, do you promise Now, for a long time, that had no effect on me. just flew over my head. This week, as I'm studying this, I realized, you know what that is? That's an indictment from a six-year-old already going, I need something more than just, you're going to do it. That already at six, I have communicated to her that my word is not just a yes or a no, and that sometimes my yeses don't mean yes, and my nos don't mean no, so that a six-year-old needs to hold me by a promise. How are we doing at work? How are we doing at home, parents? So that my children have already learned that oaths and swearing and vows are necessary in a world where people, even dads who love them, don't keep their word. And Jesus is saying... Look, I want you to be different. I want you to be marked by such honesty and integrity that you would never need to swear again at all because if you said something, someone would know it would be the same as if you started that sentence with, I swear to God. You'd never need to swear or make a promise again because everything that comes out of your mouth is equal in honesty to if you started the sentence with, I swear to God. You see, this is what Jesus is envisioning. Jesus has come to make a people, create a community that is so marked by integrity and truth-telling that swearing and vows would never be needed among us. Right? That's what Jesus said. I've come to build the kingdom of God here. We said that. That the Sermon on the Mount starts with Jesus saying, the kingdom of God is at hand. So here's what life in the kingdom looks like. So Jesus came to bring about a new world, a new community, a new society, a, a new people. Right, It's not just that he came to save one guy there or one guy there or help one guy there. He came to create a new world. And his citizens were going to live by a different ethic. And he's saying, in my kingdom, my citizens will never need to swear again because they will be marked by such integrity and honesty and truth-telling that there will be no need for oaths or promises. Their yeses will mean yeses, and their noes will be noes. There's no spin behind it. There's no half-truths. There's no stretching it. You can take them at their word. That's the kind of world Jesus came to create. Listen to me. If you're here, you're not even a Christian. Could I talk to you for a second? Isn't that the world you would want anyway? Even if you're not a Christian, isn't the world Jesus said he came to build, the world that you would want? Isn't that the city you would want to live in? A city where? There's never again a corrupt politician. No one ever needs to ask, do you know any honest mechanics? Because the response would be, is there any other kind? Right? Isn't that that amazing? I went to get an oil change this week, a $16 oil change. I got a bill for $261 of recommended uh, replacements. And this verse is brewing in my head. And so all I'm thinking is, oh, I wish I knew if your yes meant yes and if your no meant no. No. Isn't it funny? We don't even ask when we ask for a mechanic for the competency of the person as much as the character. Do you know any honest mechanics? We don't even know if they're good. We just want to know if they're honest. Jesus is creating a world where his citizens will be marked with such integrity that we would say, is there any other kind as honest mechanics? That's the world Jesus has come here to build. That's the community Jesus wants to build at Seven Mile Road. Listen, the church is an outpost of the kingdom of God. And so we're supposed to reflect to this world what the kingdom of God looks like, what life in the kingdom of God looks like, so that the people who come in contact with Seven Mile Road are to have a reputation of us that here, yes means yes, and our no's mean no. Here's the last thing. Then now what? What? If we understand what Jesus is saying, and we get the so what, what difference does it make? What's the now what? How should you respond this morning to Jesus' words? Here's what I want to say, and then we'll end. The Sermon on the Mount is Jesus' speech, and it's not a speech about how to get into the kingdom. It's a speech about what life looks like as a citizen of the kingdom. Hear me, you don't get into the kingdom by pledging today to be an honest person. In fact, you get into the kingdom by admitting you're a dishonest person and allowing Jesus to come and forgive and show grace and mercy on you. But as a citizen of the kingdom, this speech is, what's your life look like? And so the Bible is going to say, look, there's, there's two kingdoms, and each kingdom is ruled by a different ruler. There's a kingdom of darkness, and there's a kingdom of light. And the ruler of the kingdom of darkness is the evil one, the enemy of God, the devil. And the Bible says he is the father of lies. You hear Jesus say, anything more than this comes from the evil one. When he lies, he is speaking his native tongue. He's speaking his first language. It's in his very nature to lie. And so you've heard the whispers of what his lies sound like. If you ever heard in your heart... You're unlovable. You're unclean. You're condemned. You're unforgivable. If you've ever heard in your heart the whisper of, you can't trust God, you can't rely on God, you can't find joy in God, you've heard the slithery whisper of the liar. And Jesus is saying, when you and I have yeses that mean no and nos that mean yeses, we are living as if we're citizens of a different kingdom. He's the father of lies. It's what he does. It's in his very nature. When he lies, he's speaking his native tongue. But Jesus, throughout the Sermon on the Mount, is saying there's a different kingdom, a kingdom of light. And it's ruled by Jesus. And Jesus, listen to me, is not even just one who tells the truth. Jesus is the truth. Do you hear that? He is truth personified. He said in John 14, I am the way and the truth and the life. So that when Jesus speaks the truth, he's speaking in his native tongue. He's speaking his natural language. He can't do anything else but tell the truth. He's stuck with an honest nature. It's in the nature of God to always be perfectly true. And, and hear me, Maroon. isn't that the greatest news you've ever heard? That you have a God who doesn't have loopholes. So that when he tells you, I love you, you don't have to wonder, or that I forgive you, or that I've died to forgive your sins, or that I'm coming back for you, or that there's a new world, or that I'm going to wipe every tear from your eye. You don't have to have any doubt because he is true. It's in his nature to be true. When he tells the truth, and he does, he tells the truth about you, about your sin, He doesn't spin it or hide it or make it sound better. He tells the truth. And when he tells the truth about his grace and forgiveness, you can trust all of it because it's in his nature to be that way. So we are to be glad for a God like that. And the question is, which kingdom do we belong to? So what now? If you're in the kingdom of darkness, you're in a dark kingdom ruled by a liar, and today would be the day Come. To the kingdom of light and you do that by being truthful about your sins and confessing them to God who is truth and this Jesus who is the truth died for our deceit and you can be brought into this kingdom of light and if you're in the kingdom of light here's what you do you confess like Isaiah did in Isaiah 6 I am a man of unclean lips I live among a people of unclean lips There is deceit, Romans 3, under my tongue, lies in my mouth, and you confess them to the one who is true, who sees you as you are, and you plead for the help of the Holy Spirit to come and change your heart so that you might be marked by truthfulness and integrity. No more half-truths, no more spinning, no more stretching. So here's what I would recommend to you as a practical application. Today is the Lord's day, a day set apart for the Lord. Today I'd I'd commend you to meditate on one of these things. For some of you, I'd commend you to meditate on the enemy and his lies. Think about what a disastrous thing it is that the enemy constantly lies. What does it mean that he's the father of lies? And think upon that until your own pit and your own stomach is disgusted by deceit. until you feel also, I want nothing to do with that kingdom anymore. For some of you, I'd I'd encourage you to meditate on God and his truthfulness. Think about all the promises you have from God and what it means that you can actually rely on every single one. I mean, what a dreadful thought if God lied about anything. Then we wouldn't trust his word. We wouldn't trust salvation. We couldn't trust anything. But the thought that God is truth, in him there is no shadows. He is true all the way through until that becomes beautiful in your eyes and you love the truth. Or For some of you, I'd encourage you, meditate today on God's presence. Think about the fact that there is no place you can run to in the universe where you're going to turn over the picture of God, but that he is ever-present, ever-listening, ever-watching in every space in the universe so that everywhere under the sun, you're in his presence. And what would that mean for the words that come out of your mouth? And for some of you, I would have you meditate on the gospel. That is, when you're tempted to lie, you begin to ask, why do I want to lie right now? For some of you, I need to lie because I need you to think a certain way about me. If I tell the truth, you won't really like me. I need you to like me. And maybe the gospel comes and says, you're loved by God. You don't have to fib anymore. Or if you lie because you need to stay in control, maybe you need to meditate on the truth of the gospel and God who is in control. There might be places where you begin to meditate on the gospel and allow it to make you a person of truth. Whatever it might be, today is the Lord's day. And hear Jesus' words to you that he wants to call you out of darkness and into light. And he is the truth. And he wants to say to you, here's what I want for you to be by the help of the Spirit, by the blood I've already shed on your account. I want you to be a people who, when you say yes, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Anything more than this comes from evil. Let's pray.